Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs, and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 24. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing five stories for you. About sinister swamps, cursed conceptions, eerie intruders, and unsettling origins. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program which contains the first two terrifying tales. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com 
and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale tonight comes to us from an author who goes by the alias Word Dogger. In it, we'll travel to the Deep South, where two friends are enjoying time out on the water, when their night out suddenly becomes a nightmare, courtesy of an unwanted visitor. Without further ado, I present to you The Bayou. My name is Clem. I grew up in a little town south of Louisiana called Chickapin, about an hour west of New Orleans, and right on the edge of the deep bayou. There were channels everywhere. You could make it from my backyard all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico by boat. We'd spent time on the water just about every day since I could remember, and we knew the waterways in Terrebonne Parish like the backs of our hands. Me and my cousin, Rick, were about the same age, and we partnered up a lot when we were kids. There were times we'd spend most of our days in the bayou, hunting and fishing and trapping. That's what life was. For the longest time, that's about all it was. There was one particular day, or night, I should say, that stands out above all the rest, though a night I still have bad dreams about all these years later. It happened when about twelve, me and Rake, and we'd gone out in the bayou late in the evening to run some traps. Daddy and Uncle Billy pretty much let us go whenever we wanted to, because they knew they could trust us. They knew we knew our way around, and they knew we could handle ourselves. We were also supposed to stay inside certain boundaries. To the south, that meant staying out of the ship channel and not portaging over any land barriers that would let us get too far from home. We usually minded those boundaries, but, well, sometimes we didn't. The night I'm talking about was one of those nights when we decided to take some liberties. There was a series of traps we'd set along a part of the bayou we couldn't get into in our little aluminum boat unless we either skirted along the edge of the ship channel for a ways or else portaged across a small stretch of land, about a hundred yards or so. Once we'd paddled out to the ship channel and saw that it was clear, we'd decided to take our chances. The wake from even a smaller ship could swamp us if it passed too close, but we could see far enough both ways to feel comfortable. Besides, portaging was always a pain, especially in the dark. We'd made it about halfway to the channel we were heading to when things took a turn. I was in the back of the boat, so I saw it first, a small freighter coming up from behind us. I got Rake's attention and pointed at the ship, and we both knew what to do without further discussion. We dug in deep, paddling as hard as we could. Still, I yelled at Rake to paddle harder as the ship drew near. I could see the edge of the channel we were headed to as the ship's bow pulled up even with us. To tell the truth, 
I half expected to get wet, but we turned into our little channel just as the ship's wake reached us. We rode on top of the wave for ways until it died down. Then we laughed and thanked our lucky stars. Semi-disaster avoided. It was a pretty clear night. There's a full moon over us, uh, with only the occasional cloud, so we could see well enough to navigate even without our flashlights. There were cypress trees all about, and the Spanish moss hung thick all around, giving the trees a ghostly air. I loved that about the bayou. It always gave me a sense that I was a part of something that wasn't quite squared away. The first trap came to didn't have nothing, so we moved on toward the next one. It was around a bend and on a little peninsula that was just barely higher than the water. As we paddled near and rake shined a light, we saw it, both of us, two bright eyes shining back at us, and from the looks of them, they belonged to something large. You could always feel your heart rate get up when you caught something, especially if it was bigger than a coon or a possum. I could tell this was bigger. We were eager to get there, but because we were seasoned trappers, we knew to take our time. Steady strokes do nothing to get the animal more excited or scared than it already was. We must have still been forty or so feet away when Rake stopped paddling, though. I stopped, too, and we kept drifting slowly toward the bank. I shined my light at the trap and finally saw what he'd already seen. It wasn't a normal animal there on the bank, at least not one we expected to catch. It was a gator, not just any gator but maybe the biggest gator I ever seen. It had to have been 16, 18 feet long, and 1,500 pounds if it was a pound at all. It also wasn't caught in a trap. It was just sitting there on the bank, looking right at us, sort of grinning, like he was inviting us up. Come on, boys, I got room. Rake had done the right thing by not making any sudden movements, but my body didn't seem inclined to follow suit. I began paddling backward as hard as I could, and in no time flat, I'd stopped our forward progress and started us back in the way we'd come. By then, there was no point in Rake staying still, so he started paddling as well. He turned us around so our bow was in front, and we stayed at it. By then, though, the gator had slithered into the water and disappeared beneath the surface. Talk about your heart rate going up. My heart was rattling in my chest like that playing card I'd stuck in my bicycle spokes. You know, it wasn't common for a gator to chase after a boat. We kept going till our arms burned like they was about to fall off. And then we both stopped paddling and looked behind us. Rake stood up in front of the boat so he could shine his light at the water back toward the peninsula without me blocking it. I saw several water moccasins swimming toward the light as they were prone to do, but I hadn't seen no gator. It occurred to me, though, that the light was as likely to attract a gator as it was a snake, so I yelled at Rake to put out the light. He did, but it was too late. Just as he switched it off, I saw it rise up, 
The top side of the gator's massive head, not more than five feet between us. His big eyes focused right on us. I could see the water rippling, too, way back behind where his tail was swimming slow. Good Lord, he was big. Rake saw him, too, but I yelled at him anyway. I was already paddling before his butt hit the seat, and both started digging at the water as hard as we could. It wasn't but a few seconds later, though, that something bumped up against us on the side, so hard it almost tipped us over. Rake lost hold of his paddle, and it went into the water. I didn't care. Once the boat had settled, I kept on paddling. We had a twenty-two caliber rifle and a twenty-two caliber pistol in the boat with us. I didn't figure either one of them would do a bit of good against that gator's hide. But since Rake had lost his paddle, he grabbed up the pistol. The gator pushed up against the side of our boat again, not as solid as before. It didn't cause me to break stride. There was another bump. Then a while later, it felt like the gator tried to come up from under the boat. It sort of lifted us up on the water, and then it went away. I paddled for just about as long as I could, and then I stopped. I could see the ship channel from where we were. I told Rake that I didn't think it was wise for us to go out in the ship channel, especially since we didn't have but one paddle. Of course, we could come across something unpleasant on land if we chose to potage, but as long as we had our guns, we should be able to manage... So that's what we decided to do. In any event, we didn't need to sit where we were for very long. That gator could have gotten bored and moved on, but we couldn't be sure of that. We needed a move. Rake shined his light over to the left bank, and pretty soon he found the spot we usually used as a landing. I started moving in in that direction, but no sooner than I got us turned that way Rake yelled at me to look out, and then he fired several shots right past my shoulder. I turned just in time to see the huge gator coming at me, his whole head out of the water with his jaws wide and just about to come over the stern. I remember thinking in that split second how big his teeth were. They was huge. Anyway, I launched myself toward Rake just as the animal landed its head where I'd been sitting. And all at once, the boat pitched up hard and rolled. Me and Rake landed in the bayou. The water was still deep enough to be over our heads this close to the ship channel. And I was disoriented at first, having gone under in all that blackness. Of course, it didn't help that I was completely panicked. But soon enough, I remembered to stay still and look for light. I saw some pretty thick moonbeams on the surface. And I swam up to the top. The boat was upside down, but it was just a few feet away from me. Got a hold of it about the same time Rake did. I sure was glad to see him there, but I was just as aware that we was truly in mortal danger and had to get going. Rake said it too, that we had to get to land, we had to get to the bank. I said we should stay with the boat, and we did. Him on one side, me on the other, paddling toward the shore. We had just reached the point where our feet could touch bottom when I felt something brush up against my legs, something heavy and rough. No doubt it was the gator, and its body scraped on by my thigh all the way from its front leg to its back leg. 
I was so scared. It felt like my soul was about to shoot out on of my body, and I couldn't help but freeze. I stood perfectly still. Rake asked me what was wrong, but before I could answer, the gator took a hold of him and yanked him under. I know I screamed. I know it's not manly and all, but I screamed. I called his name over and over, but I couldn't see him anywhere, him or the gator for that matter. No sign at all. I wasn't really thinking clear by then, neither, but I managed to turn the boat back over and climb in, as fate would have it. The only thing left in the boat was my paddle. No guns, no flashlights, no nothing but my paddle. It had got jammed up under my seat somehow when the gator had come crashing down on it. Needless to say, maybe, but by then I'd become hysterical. I mean, it didn't seem real. How was it possible that my cousin was out there somewhere under the water in the jaws of a huge gator? It was too awful to consider. That seemed to be the story. That was what there was. That was all there was. Gators don't eat you right away, neither. They took you under in a death roll till you were drowned. Then they stuffed you under a ledge or a log or something and left you there to rot. Once you was ready, they'd come back for you and eat you piece by piece. For all the world and everything in it, how could it be to my cousin Rake's destiny? That rotting under a log and be ate up by a huge gator. There's nothing, though, no sound, but the occasional hoot of an owl and a croak of a bullfrog. And I thought I heard a big cat growl, but other than that, the bayou was quiet. Then all of a sudden, not far from me, there came a big splash and a fuss across the water, the surface. I saw a rake. He was trying to swim away from the gator, but the gator was practically on top of him. And only a second or later, well, they both went back under. This was horrible, the most horrible thing I could imagine, and I was living it. I paddled over to where they'd gone down, but there was nothing to be seen. A few seconds later, though, they came back up, more out toward the middle. I yelled out his name. He managed to look my way for a split second, and he yelled my name. But then the gator took him under again. I don't know how I knew, but it was clear to me right then and there that Hearing him call my name like that and seeing that gator take him under would haunt me for the rest of my days. I started toward the, where they'd been, but then they came up again more toward the bank. This time, not only did he call my name, but he also screamed the word help and screamed it uh, like, like, like nothing I'd ever heard. The sound of his voice was the embodiment of terror. Hearing it made my skin crawl all over. Then, like before, they both disappeared beneath the water. And the last thing I saw was Rake's hand clawing at the air, trying to find anything to grab hold of. I desperately paddled toward them again, and I started looking, hollering for him, bending over the side of the boat so far, trying to see under the water that I almost fell out. Too long. Been under too long this time. There was no way he could still be alive. I came to know that in my heart, and a feeling of evil and darkness like I'd never imagined possible began to settle over me. 
This was more than I could bear. I didn't see how I could ever find my way back to any form of sanity. I could feel it in my whole body like a weight, like a poison. I could barely breathe. Suddenly, and without any warning at all, something came crashing through the surface of the water right beside my boat like it had been shot out of a cannon. Miracle of miracles, it was Rake. He was most of the way in the boat before I could even get over and help drag him in the rest of the way. He flopped in on the boat's bottom like a big fish, and before I could fully grasp the reality of what had just happened, he was screaming at me to paddle to get to the land. He wouldn't shut up about it, and finally I made my way to the seat and started paddling for shore. Rake was breathing hard and moaning just about every other breath, but I couldn't tend to him just then. I had to get us to shore. I was afraid to look over my shoulder to see if we were being followed, but finally I couldn't help it. Sure enough, there was. That big gator was right behind us, no more than three feet back, just skimming along with nothing showing but on top of its head and back, with its tail swishing back and forth real slow. Just a few seconds later, I ran the boat aground, and I hopped over Rake and out in front, so I could drag it all the way up. Once I'd done it, I looked out over the water, fully expecting to see the gator coming up after us. But to my surprise, I didn't see him nowhere. I didn't quite trust it. I mean, it could have popped out of the water at any moment. But the relief I felt in that instant was indescribable. Anyway... Whether the gator was coming after us or not, I had to get further from the water, so I dragged the boat a good twenty yards inland. Only then did I dare give Rake a good look, and what I saw was ghoulish. He had blood on him in a lot of places, but the thing that got me the most was his leg, his right leg. From the knee all the way down to the foot, there was nothing but bone. No skin, no meat, just bone. The little bone in back was just hanging loose, and I could see where the big bone was almost broken, too. The thing that I found so odd, though, was that his shoe was still on his foot. His leg had gone through all that, and somehow his shoe had managed to stay on his foot. Anyway, I tried to talk to him, but he wasn't making no sense. I could see that his leg was bleeding bad from just below the knee, and I knew that he would be bound to bleed to death if I couldn't find a way to stop it, or at least slow it down. Frankly, I don't know how I managed the presence of mine, but somehow right then I knew what I had to do. I took off my belt and wrapped it around his thigh right above the knee, and I pulled it tight, tight as I could, and then I wrapped it around again and tied it off. I could see the bleeding slow down. It seemed like by a lot. No sooner than I got the belt cinched in place, though. I heard the low growl of a big cat. Maybe the one I heard when I'd still been out on the water, somewhere real close. Maybe it had been watching, stalking us, waiting to see if we'd managed to escape the gator and make it to dry land. By then, no doubt, smelling all that blood was wetting its appetite. I had to admit that my imagination was in fear-fueled overdrive but there wasn't a doubt in my mind that there was a panther nearby, 
and that it was going to come for us. I couldn't just sit there waiting for it to attack, though, so I hopped out of the boat and started dragging it, which wasn't that easy by myself, in the dark, with Rake lying up toward the front end. I almost tripped several times over roots and such, but I managed to keep on balance and to keep going. I could hear it, though. I could hear the big cat pacing us, probably waiting for the right moment. I stopped to listen, and it stopped. I started back up, and it came along. It was crazy. I felt completely vulnerable, yet I was unable to do anything about it. If only our guns weren't at the bottom of the bayou. I'd made it about three-quarters of the way across, and I had to stop to rest. Just a moment. But I had to stop. That's when it happened. The panther came at me in a flash and knocked me back into the boat. I came down on top of Rake and the panther came down on top of me. I knew in my heart that we'd come to the end because there was a full-grown cat on me and I was just a boy, all alone and without any means to protect myself. The moment was near. I could feel it. Just when my will to live was about to succumb to the panther's desire to eat, though, I heard it. It was a shot, coming from very near, and in that instant the big cat went limp and fell lifeless upon me. I scrambled out from under it and managed to find my feet in a hurry. What a strange memory. The sight of seeing a rake and that panther lying side by side in the bottom of that boat, one barely alive, the other dead as a stone. It all seemed like a dream. Even then but I knew it wasn't. Just then, I felt a hand on my shoulder. It was my daddy. I can say with complete confidence that I'd never been so glad to see somebody in all my life before or since. Him and Uncle Billy and two of their friends had come looking for us when we hadn't made it back for supper, and lucky for us they had. I told them what had happened real quick and just as quick. Daddy and Uncle Billy carried us to the boat and took us back to the house so they could get Rick to the hospital. Their friends stayed back. They had to get it out and kill. Rake lost his leg below the knee, but he kept his life. Still don't understand how he managed to get away from that big gator, but he had. I can't even imagine what those few minutes must have been like for him fighting against that beast under the dark water. Unlike me and the panther, I always thought that maybe his will to live had been stronger than that gator's desire to eat. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. All I know for sure is that all these years later, I still travel all over those bayou channels. And so does Rake. And just like when we were kids, sometimes we follow the rules and sometimes we don't. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience 
and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed The Bayou by author Word Dogger. Up next, we've got a second twisted tale for you. This one from author Megan J. Meehan. And it will follow the story of a young man who ought to be more careful about the company he keeps, and who risks losing far more than his innocence at the hands of his newfound friends. Without further ado, I present to you Sire. I keep hearing them crackling. I can't see them, but I hear them. At first I thought it was just a distant wolf howling or... My imagination playing up, but now I'm certain that they're here, somewhere amid the trees. Maybe watching me, maybe not, but aware of me nonetheless. Them hags are aware of everything that goes on in these woods, and I love them for it in spite of myself. Their presence makes these nightly camping excursions more interesting. I'll give them that. But I wish I could drag my nice soft bed out here with me, sleeping on the rooty ground with nothing but a few woolly blankets and a little tarp tent gets really old really fast. One day, the devil will take me for the things I do for the girls. Until then, my aching body will do the complaining every morning. I played out most of my life in these woods, alongside the things that dwell within it. I lived in fascinated fear of them most of my life, which is funny, considering that I started out being enchanted by them. Bone truth is, deep down, I miss them in a strange way. I think about them every day and wonder what would have become of me had I stayed on with them. I suppose it's only natural... Man's a curious creature. I knew they were running around in the woods since I was a boy growing up in a rickety wood cabin on the edge of the trees. We had a small farm consisting of one donkey, ten chickens, two goats, and a cow. We also had a big old hound dog who couldn't herd for nothing, but was a darn good watchdog. If anybody came anywhere near the house... Old Hank would start barking like he was possessed. Hank saw them before I did, or sensed them, anyway. As far back as I can remember, Hank would stand guard right on the edge of the woods line. He'd stare real fixedly and snarl and growl. Not at uh, just nighttime, either. Even in broad daylight, he couldn't look into the forest without being on high alert. I reckon they were stinking around even then. Probably had been for over a century by that stage. But I only recall seeing glimpses of them here and there. My very first recollection is seeing one staring out at me from behind a tree 
She was old, withered, and raggedy, and sharp-faced, glaring at me with cold black eyes. I screamed and cried for my mama, and she reassured me that it had just been my imagination. We were on our own out there. We had no neighbors, and town was about an hour's walk each way. Surely there couldn't possibly be no woman in the woods. Mama then turned all angry on my pa and blamed him for telling me the story of Hansel and Gretel and the scary old witch. She said he'd put ideas in my head. Truthfully, he just allowed me to put a name to what I'd been seeing long before I ever heard that old fairy tale. Witches. Them things in the woods were witches. Back then, I didn't know exactly where the coven lived, but I knew they wasn't far away, and they had a real fascination with our farm. We'd often lose chickens during the night. Mostly, they just disappeared. But a few times, later on especially, some blood and feathers would be left behind, as if in ritual. Pa said it was foxes, but he never sounded none too convinced of that. Looking back, I reckon my father was well aware that bad things lurked in those woods. My mama did, too. She'd get all jittery if we was outside, and she heard as much as a twig stamp. I don't know if she ever got a glimpse of one, but she never missed as much as one Sunday church sermon. I suppose all that praying was her way of seeking protection from a threat that she couldn't describe or explain. My folks might have had their suspicions, but they ain't never said nothing to me. Of course, they didn't have to say anything to me. I knew more than anyone else because I'd seen more than anybody. Those hags had a fancy for me from day one. They was always lurking around the woods, but when I was five, they got bolder and started staring in me at the window. If I had the poor luck of waking up in the middle of the night, I'd get a nasty shock when I looked over at the window to see several of those raggedy women staring in at me, grinning. I woke up screaming more nights than I can count. Mama blamed the fairy tales, but I knew them women were as real as the moon. The old hags could move fast, too. They were always away from the window when my pa and mama burst into my room. To be honest, not all of them were hags. Some of them were young, and later several were beautiful, which is really how the whole mess started in the first place. Occasionally, they seemed kind and friendly, more akin to angels than witches. I was about four the first time I really took notice of the one who called herself Blythe. She looked to be only a few years older than me, and she had a soft smile. At night, she'd come to the window closest to my bed. She always seemed to know when I couldn't sleep. And we'd make funny faces at each other, she standing outside and me lying in bed, until I got sleepy enough to doze off. Sometimes she'd hum lullabies to me, just loud enough for me to hear, but she never woke my folks. I liked being an only child, and when I found out my mama was expecting, I was none too pleased. I went up to the window the night I found out, and I tearfully told Blythe about how 
I didn't want no brother or sister. She nodded at me with sympathy in her eyes and took my hand in hers. She listened close, even though she didn't say anything. Blythe was as quiet as a spider. I was elated a little while later to hear I wasn't going to have none, although I was sorry to see Mama laid up in bed crying. I understand now that she had and then kept having miscarriages, and she didn't know why, although I did. I willed it without even understanding that I'd done so. I was twelve, going on thirteen, when the Civil War started. I was too young to get called up, and my pa was too old, so we just continued life as if nothing was wrong. Our neck of the woods saw no fighting, and the soldiers didn't descend on our little town neither. I suppose you could say we was real lucky, or we had a little extra protection. As the war raged on around us, near but distant, boys only a little older than me was losing their lives every day. As for me, I kept my life, but gave my soul to something much worse than soldiers. Blythe was the start of it, of course, as I always knew she'd be. Her visits to me had become more frequent, and they wasn't only confined to the nighttime anymore. It had started when she took to peeking at me from the woods and brought daylight as I did my daily chores. Now they'd always been there, creeping and peeking. But Blythe got close. She wanted me to know she was there. Hell, she was my friend. I was about seven when our kinship initially started up, and over the course of the following five years, we took to playing hide-and-seek and tag whenever I could sneak away. As usual, Blythe never spoke a word. I don't think she could. Her sisters, I suppose that's as good a thing to call them as any, could speak, rave even, in my language, and tongues far older. But Blythe was mute. She was also beautiful, and seemed to grow up right with me, except lovelier and lovelier the older I got. When I was twelve, I started to notice her piercing blue eyes, jet black hair, and magenta lips with increasing interest. She was lithe, yet curvy in all the right places. When I was thirteen, I went down to the river to get some washing water from my mama, who was having one of her bad spells, a day when she did nothing but lie around the house. That happened more and more after she started losing all the babies. Anyway, while I was down at the water, Blythe crept out of the woods. I smiled at her, thinking she was just going to stand on the shore and stare at me like she so often did. She never helped me with the chores, but instead she descended into the water, way past her knees up to her thighs. In the process of doing so, she lifted her skirt high enough to give me a full view of her long legs. I stared, and she stopped and looked right at me. She smiled coyly, and then she giggled, which was the most noise I'd ever heard her make when she wasn't humming some strange tune, splashed some water in my direction and darted off back into the woods, leaving me standing there by my lonesome and wishing, yearning, for more of her legs and laugh and company. 
I saw her again two days later, and that's when she offered me the apple. A rare sort of red, savory, and juicy. I can still feel it on my lips. I suppose that was the day of my indoctrination, since my absolute obsession with Bly that started then. Thought about her constantly, even dreamt about her, and as if she knew it, she started getting flirtier with me. She would still meet me in the woods to play like we had when we was kids, or when I was a kid and she looked like a kid, but she started flashing her legs at me more. Well, at first it was her legs, but over time she let me catch flashes of other more intimate parts of her, too. Always from a distance, mind you. She wouldn't ever stand still long enough to let me touch her. Not as if I'd have the nerve to begin with, mind you. But she'd taken to touching me whenever she could. She'd jump out at me from behind the trees and stroke my hair or run her palm down my chest, which drove me wild even with my shirt on. And she even reached out and squeezed my leg on occasions when we were sitting next to each other. If I tried to touch her, she'd stand up and run off into the woods, giggling like the tease she was. She was driving me crazy, and it only got worse when she started bringing her friends, or sisters, or whatever the hell they were, with her. One was more succulent than the next. There was the busty blonde named Anne, who wasn't shy about complimenting me, and looking me over in a way that made my heart hammer in my chest. Joan was a brunette with black eyes that were as pretty as Blythe's blues, and she was the really touchy-feely one. But no matter how much they surrounded me and fawned over me and had fed me, possibly fresh apples and grapes, they never let me get too comfortable, and they never let things go as far as I wanted, and whenever we was out in the woods together, I'd always spy other shapes creeping about, the old ones lurking. I suppose they were spying on us, making sure all went according to plan. I'd become so enthralled by the woods that I started neglecting my chores. On a few occasions, I'd wander home late, and my pa had given me a heck of a belting while my mama screamed and cried and begged him to stop. She was disturbed by how thin I'd grown. I hadn't been eating on the regular. My only appetite at the time had nothing to do with food. Hank, the dog, went first. My pa and I found him all ripped up on the edge of our farm. My pa thought it was a fox, but I thought the slashes looked more like claws or talons like a lady's fingernails more than teeth. I can't say I was angry. I couldn't prove them women of the woods had anything to do with the old dog's death, and it was one less mouth to feed. My father went next. Then my mother. Both were taken by fever. They came down sick without me noticing too much at first. I was mighty distracted most days, after all. But when I saw them sicking up and feverish... I instantly ran to the woods. I screamed for Blythe and the others, and I begged them for help. I somehow knew they could make potions, yet I was just calling into the trees. No one came. 
I thought I'd been forsaken and walked home feeling sick and panicky, only to find a pretty green glass bottle at my door. Relief washed over me like rainwater. See, I still loved my folks dearly, and I would have done anything to save them. I made sure both my parents drank from the bottle, then I took a swig from it too. I don't know why I did. I wasn't ailing them, but it just seemed like a good idea at the time. It was sweet, yet it had a sharp aftertaste. I ain't never tasted nothing like it before or since, but I ain't never forgot it or what it did. As soon as I swallowed it down, I felt completely relaxed and at peace with everything, which is pretty goddamn weird, considering both my parents were dying, but I slept like a baby that night. Within a fortnight, both my folks had passed on, but I didn't cry or make any fuss at all. It's like I was incapable of feeling sadness. I calmly walked outside in the light of day and started digging two graves. I had no desire to alert the town or set up a church mass. My parents had been happy living on that farm for nearly two decades, and they'd be happy staying there for eternity. As I was digging, I heard branches crack behind me. I turned around and saw Blythe standing there, her big eyes looking at me not with sympathy, but with a kind of longing, a yearning, that I ain't never seen in her before. Anne and Joan followed close behind her, and all three of them helped me finish the burials and mark the graves with rocks. Then Blythe, who was still my favorite of all, took my hand and pulled me into the woods with Joan and Anne following. Then, too, was giggling, but Blythe was just smiling. Back then I thought her grin was soft and sweet, but looking back now, I realized that there was something wolfish right under the surface. That was the day my life either began or ended, depending on how you look at it. It was certainly when things got weird, though. Blythe led me by hand through the woods to a cabin that was nestled between a grove of trees and a mountain rock. They took me inside and gave me another sip of something, this time out of a blue bottle that sent my head spinning in the nicest possible way. They led me to a tub of nice warm water, which was a rarity back when I was sixteen, and all three of the young ones stripped me naked before scrubbing me down with fresh soap getting all the dirt and grime off of my skin and out of my hair. Blythe was just smiling, but Anne and Joan were commenting on how nice and muscular I was. After my bath, they dried me off with a towel as soft as velvet and led me to a nice soft bed. Each one of them took turns making me a man. I was happy Blythe went first, because she was special. Although as I watched her face contort in pleasure, I couldn't help but notice that it was changing, altering. At times it looked like she was about a thousand years old, which should have disturbed me, but I was too wrapped up in euphoria to startle. And that's how things went for some unknown length of time. I stayed lying in that bed all day, drinking their portions and eating their food, sleeping soundly entwined in their plush blankets with my head resting on their soft pillows and making love to the young ones every night. At 
first it was just Blythe and Anne and Joan, but then there were others, and I couldn't keep track of anything, and I didn't care that I couldn't. I was aware of the older woman being around. They looked like hags, but they cooked well and didn't try to mess with me, so I didn't mind them. Occasionally I had a nightmare about sharp-toothed, gaping-mawed demon women chasing me through the trees, and I'd wake up in a cold sweat, startling all the girls, coven, lying around me. Then they'd give me a swig of one of their potions, and it would go all away, and all would be well again. Occasionally, I'd come out of my pleasure stupor enough to notice that some of the girls' bellies were extending, swelling like pumpkins in autumn in a way that could only mean pregnancy. They were growing my children inside of them. That realization initially horrified me so much that I physically recoiled and let out a little scream. They laughed and surrounded me and let me feel their bellies. Something was moving inside them, but it felt more like a festering nest of ants than a baby. As they poured more of that sweet potion down my throat, and sent my hazy head back into oblivion. As blissfully out of it as I was back then, there are some things I recall. I suppose the war was still going on, because I'd occasionally hear the sound of lost soldiers roaming around the woods. The ladies would throw a blanket over me to keep me, their treasure, warm and hidden, safe, before leaving the cabin. I'd sometimes just be able to make out vague voices, conversations that went from chatter to panic to screaming. Afterwards, the ladies would use the scraps of their uniforms to sew themselves new dresses and prettying the garments up with shiny brass buttons and the occasional ring. And one of the old hags could cook up a nice meaty stew and share some with me. Over the years, I can't count how many times I've had a hankering to taste that delicious meal again. Other times I'd hear babies crying or gurgling. Some sounded right, like what I assumed a human child should sound like, and others didn't. The crying always stopped, sometimes by itself, sometimes after I heard a good, hard, sickening thud, but it always stopped eventually. Then I'd see the ladies busying themselves around the cauldron, Brewing up a skin cream that made them all look younger, fresher, even the old ones. Other times I'd catch glimpses of the women nursing babies at their bosoms. Anne and Joan used to do it right in front of me, but they would not never let me see the children's, my children's, faces. I got a feeling they kept the girls only. They was replenishing the coven. I have no idea how long their kind lives, because I'm now certain that there ain't nothing human about them. But some of the older ones had to be close to the end. Perhaps that's why they needed me. Blythe's belly never grew. Even though she visited me in the bed most often and most tenderly, she never grew my seed. I have no idea why that still makes me a little sad, given the horror of what was happening to those, my, young'uns, but it does. Blythe's special to me, always will be. A few times a year, which I now reckon to be 
the two equinoxes and solstices, they'd leave the cabin and descend into the woods. I was so curious one night that I decided to follow them. I had to gather my strength to get out of the bed, and my legs and feet felt cramped and sore since I hadn't been walking in a while. I spied them just beyond the tree grove, all of them dancing stark naked around a big bonfire. I wasn't able to take my eyes off them, even though I was scared that they was going to see me and get mad and crack my skull open like they'd done to most of the babes. Yet after about an hour, Blyde did spot me and did nothing but smile. Later, they all led me back to the cabin, and Blyde loved me to sleep while Anne and Joan lounged nearby, lulling the sweet song in a language that only their kind could understand. And so that's how it was for years, maybe as long as a decade or more. I lived every young man's fantasy and probably would have kept on doing it if they hadn't evicted me. It wasn't as harsh as it sounds. I always figured that when they got tired of me, they'd simply kill me and eat me like they did to the soldiers, and the occasional band of runaway slaves who had the misfortune of crossing the cabin's path. Yet Blythe had other ideas, although she never spoke. She was somehow the most commanding of them. Hell, for all I know, she's the oldest and is just real good at masking it. One day, when I was a grown man, with a full beard and fuller belly, she dressed me and helped me off the bed and led me out of the cabin. We walked hand in hand out of the woods, in much the same way that we'd walked into it so many years before. She brought me back to my childhood home. My parents' graves were overgrown, the stones covered in moss, and the barn was barely standing, but a rush of memories came at me nonetheless. I told her I didn't want to stay here. I begged her to go back to the cabin, the coven, and the warmth of her bed, body. But she shook her head firmly. She handed me a pouch full of sand, or what normal folks would mistake for sand, and pointed outward toward the farm and the trees and what lay beyond. Without one word uttered, I'd been given my instructions, assigned my fate. I would have compiled regardless, but I'm mighty glad that she saw fit to give me one final intimate kiss before she slipped back into the woods and disappeared among the trees. It was strange going back to town. A lot had changed, and most folks didn't know me or assumed I was a hobo or a drifter. I hadn't shaved in a while. Pa had been poor, but a savvy one, and he had saved some coins in a mason jar that he'd buried under the porch. I dug it up and had just enough in the pocket to get a wash and a shave, some food and a paper. The old feller behind the counter at the general store seemed to recognize me, although he didn't say nothing. It took me a moment to recognize him, since when I had been there last, he was a man of thirty or so, and now he looked like a granddaddy. I sure as heck ain't aged that much. Whatever the girls put into those potions clearly worked. The paper said there'd been a war, not the Civil War, but another one, and now a third was brewing. The country was in trouble, everybody was poor. Money men in New York City were jumping out of windows, and out west there was some awful freak of nature going on called the Dust Bowl. It sounded more like a hex or a spell than anything natural, but of course I didn't say that to nobody. 
In fact, I didn't say one word to nobody then, and haven't much since. I'm sure my conversation skills are well and truly lacking. With my foray into town over, I went back to the farm and spread the sand, ground baby bones, all over the edges of my property. I knew damn well it was a protection spell, a long-lasting one at that. I saw how the world was changing when I went into my once sleepy village, people riding around on machines rather than horses, and women wearing outfits that showed off more of their physiques than my mama would have thought proper. And the town was bigger, a lot bigger, than it had been when I was a boy. It's only a matter of time before more people come and then folks start walking around those woods. And Blythe knew it. We can't let nobody find them, or me. I'll start fixing up my homestead, although I reckon I'm about eight decades old. Uh, I don't feel or look more than 35 or so. I can do it. The work will put muscles on me, just the way they like it. If the coven needs a place to run to, sanctuary, I can provide such safety. And it's not just because if I fail... They'll tear me limb from limb and use my parts for potions, which they would, but that, that's beside the point. There's a reason I built that old farmstead back up. There's a cause behind me camping out yonder every night just to hear the cold comfort of their calls and rustlings. There's a method behind my unending diligence to their preservation. I protect them because that's what patriarchs do. I hope you enjoyed Sire by author Megan J. Meehan. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, Please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyrie channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014, and you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Just search for Otis Gyrie. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs>
Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at Otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>
which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.